Welcome to The Commentary, a weekly conversation about vision, worship, and life at Grace Presbyterian Church. I'm Mark Bertrand, the pastor of Grace, and my fellow commenter in today's episode is Cameron Brooks. This time, we'll be joined once again by Dan Reed. Together, we'll be talking about mountains as a recurring image throughout Scripture and what these geographical high points have to do with spiritual reality. The mountains are calling, and I must go. The naturalist John Muir wrote those words in a letter to his sister in 1873. He had no idea that nearly a century and a half later, the mountains are calling would be the motto of the Instagram generation, emblazoned on t-shirts and camp mugs and other swag, a lot of it destined never to get closer to an actual mountain than an over-the-shoulder selfie. In the ancient world, our modern romantic notions of escaping the city and getting back to nature would have seemed very strange. The city was civilization, culture, family. The wilderness was a desert, a waste, a place you sometimes had to travel through, but definitely not a destination. Climbing mountains for fun? Well, that wasn't yet a thing. But Psalm 48 shines an interesting light on the question. Listen to these opening lines. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion, in the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. Here, the city of God, Jerusalem, and the holy mountain of God, Zion, are one and the same. The wilderness, where God sustained his people, and the city, where God established them, merge into a single stronghold, a glorious dwelling place where the divine and the human meet. This episode of the commentary is a bit special. We took some time to focus on a single theme, the meaning of mountains in Scripture. Inspired by the two mountains in the last of Zechariah's night visions, Cameron, Dan, and myself took a little tour of the high places throughout the Bible. We hope you'll enjoy coming along with us. We have a pretty good idea, by the way, of when the practice of climbing mountains for pleasure got started. On April 26, 1336, the Italian Renaissance poet Francesco Petrarca climbed up Mount Ventoux in Provence, which is technically part of the Alps. He was accompanied by his brother Gerardo, his two servants, and his copy of Augustine's Confessions. Petrarch wrote about the climb 15 years later, and he described it as a strenuous ascent, more so for him than for his brother. Gerardo took the straight path, but Petrarch searched for an easier route, and as a result, he made slower progress. But at the top of the mountain, he did something truly worthy of social media. He cracked open his book. For a long time, people said that Petrarch was the first person to summit the mountain, but that's probably not the case. 
The birth of the Renaissance in Italy has also been credited to Petrarch, and that claim is more solid. His ascent of Malventoux has been described as one of those great moments that oscillate indecisively between the epochs. In this case, the medieval epoch and the modern. Whether he was first or not, though, I'm guessing Petrarch was probably the most famous poet to ascend the mountain. And his only motive for climbing that day was just the pleasure of doing it. For me, the story gets interesting when we find out what Petrarch read on the mountaintop. As I said, he brought Augustine's confessions with him, and he happened to be reading from Book 10. There, in Chapter 8, he found these words. People are moved to wonder by mountain peaks, by vast waves of the sea, by broad waterfalls on rivers, by the all-embracing extent of the ocean, by the revolutions of the stars. But in themselves, they are uninterested. Well, I think that verdict is as good today as it was in Augustine's or in Petrarch's time. Hopefully, our interest in the landscape in this episode will be different. We want to know what the geography can reveal to us about God and about ourselves. Mountains seem to play an interesting role in Scripture. They're not just mountains. They seem to be representative of something more. So I thought maybe we could talk about generally both in the Old and the New Testament, what about mountains? What do they mean? What do they symbolize? Yeah, it's an interesting topic. So I think, first of all, just to establish credibility, whether or not people should listen to what we're saying, we should announce the highest mountains that we've personally summited. So, uh, Dan, we'll start with you. What's the highest mountain you've personally climbed? Oh, I think maybe the snow mountain behind our house uh, that, okay. uh, that they've pushed up. Maybe Mount Baldy out in the Black Hills. Okay, and that's how many feet do you think? Oh, it's not real high. 40,000 probably, something like that. Sure. Cameron, what about you? What's your highest summit? You know, I was in Colorado as a kid and incidentally climbed this mountain called Cameron Pass. Oh. And... I happened to fall down the mountain quite a ways on the way down, but I think it was the highest mountain. I don't remember how how tall I was a kid, but it seemed pretty up there. I remember the view was pretty remarkable. Sure. Yeah. It's going to surprise both of you to know that I personally have never climbed a mountain. Uh, I did fall off of a small hill at Waterloo, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, but uh, taking all of that in stride and now going to the significance of, of scriptural mountains. Uh, obviously, there are lots of little incidents that happen on mountaintops uh, and not so little incidents, but, but what are some of the high points that we could outline of mountains? Obviously, Mount Sinai is going to be a huge touchstone where Moses received the Ten Commandments. I talked about that Sunday, but what are some other mountains we need to put on our our biblical chart i mean uh, elijah uh, when he was running away from jezebel and met with the lord on the mountain there oh good yeah i wasn't even thinking about the life of elijah but there's more than i thought there's 
Ebal and Gerizim, the two mounts that they yelled back and forth on. In Joshua, we have Elijah seeking a refuge in the mountain. Um, Mount Zion, of course. Obviously, that's <laughs> that. Zion would be the big yeah, one. Yeah, that's uh, probably the the starting point, really, or if not the starting point, like the focal point for mountains in Scripture would have to be the passage in Hebrews. You know, you have not come to Mount Sinai, but to Mount Zion, and the contrast between the the sort of awe-inspiring, uh, frightening encounter with God at Sinai and the gracious and beautiful encounter at Zion. So if if we were going to sum it all up in kind of a two towers kind of a way, I, I think you could tell your story from Sinai to Zion. And and that would be a, a kind of summation. And you think that the author of Hebrews is saying that there's something about Mount Zion which resembles the grace of God as opposed to the law of God given at Sinai? I think he's using the mountains as symbols of of the the covenant revelation. You know, that the at Sinai you have the the unveiling of the fullness of the old covenant, you know, with the Mosaic law. And at Zion, you have the new covenant and the grace of the new covenant on full display. So obviously there's grace throughout because whether we're talking about the the old or the new, they are all encompassed in the one covenant of grace, but it has development, you know, in stages. And so I think for the author of Hebrews, that contrast of old and new is always that what is new is better than what is old. You know, Jesus is a better covenant mediator than Moses is. Zion is a better mountain than Sinai in that same kind of way. It reminds me of Galatians chapter four, where Paul also makes this interesting comparison between two mountains and two women. So Hagar Mm. and Sarah. So this is chapter four, verses around 25, 24. He says, without the context, he says, now this may be interpreted allegorically. So these women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. So there's that interesting connection between some kind of slavery and Sinai, the law. She is Hagar. Of course, Hagar was the slave. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. There it is. But the the Jerusalem above is free. She is our our mother. And this is talking about Sarah, Abraham's wife. So we could maybe say that mountains are meeting places of God, but they also represent these these really significant acts of God, perhaps, throughout Scripture. Right. And, and I think in our sort of mountaintop uh, topological study, the other point maybe we want to add is, is Olivet. Thinking especially in terms of Zechariah, because Zechariah's final night vision with the two bronze mountains is a sort of prefiguration of the prophecy that comes in Zechariah 14 that says when 
God sets foot on earth at Mount Olivet, he will divide the mount into two. And so if we want to talk about mountains as a place where man and God commune, we also have in that picture the place of what you might think is like God's touchdown, like heaven on earth setting foot on the mountain and and dividing it. Uh, We saw earlier in, in the visions where Zerubbabel's promised that he's going to finish the temple. And at one point, the prophecy directly addresses the mountain. And it says, you, O mountain, will become like a plain. Uh, The implication is that as the temple rises, the mountain of opposition will seem like nothing in comparison. And so that idea of leveling the mountains is also big here. So it's not just that we go up onto the mountaintop to experience God, but when God comes down, the mountains shake and, and he flattens them and uh, communes with us, as it were, on a, on a level playing field. It makes me think of the Sermon on the Mount. I don't know if there's anything here, but Jesus did give his, his law, so to speak, or the Beatitudes, from this hill or a, it's called a mount or whatever. Is there anything there that the, the gospel writers are trying to convey to us that this is something new again in contrast with Sinai, the law that's given there? Or is it just incidental that it happens to be on a hill, do you think? It's a good question. I mean, I, I think that the, so the, the interpretive tradition that sees the Beatitudes as a, uh, transformation of the law is at least you know somewhat influenced by the fact that there's that similarity in in uh i guess mountain setting let's say a mount setting uh, of course as we've already acknowledged uh, sometimes this is a question of of just what we would think of as the accidents of history that in hindsight have a symbolic value that Jesus happens to do this on a mountain, that, that God happens to meet with, with Moses on Mount Sinai, and then it becomes richly meaningful uh, after the fact. So I think it is, you know, we, we always start off, probably when it comes to interpretation, we are always afraid of over-interpreting. You know, I, I remember countless literature classes where, you know, somebody would always throw up their hands at some point and just say, you know, you guys are just reading into the text. It's not really there. And my sympathies were always with those people. You know, I, I hated that sort of overinterpretation. But the thing about scripture is that there really are those layers there, and it really is possible to find um meaning where really in any other text, you would just be grasping at straws. It's one of the the things about a text that is inspired by the creator of all history that these correspondences can be found are really real. So I think on the one hand, yeah, you always want to be humble in interpreting the significance of things. But on the other, there really is a there there, you know. So the the question that I just want to ask then is, is there anything really transcendent about mountains 
you know, we, we use this phrase, the mountaintop experience. People like to go to the mountains. I like to go to the mountains. They're beautiful. They're awesome in the truest sense. Is there anything to that, that you, you have a closer experience with God? Or is it just something that, that humans like? Well, so I, I think going back to that quote of Augustine's, I think that what the mountain does or what the, the encounter with nature does is something significant because what all of those experiences have in common usually is, is the sense of smallness that you take away. You know, you're standing on the mountain and you see the sweeping vista. And if you're like me, you start thinking how small you are and, you know, Cameron's probably already falling down the mountain at this point, but, but, you know, you feel, you know, minuscule in comparison. So when we talk about the feeling of awe, you know, you stand at the edge of the Grand Canyon and you feel awe. I think awe is like a fancy word of describing like the terror of your insignificant existence. And so I think there is something about those encounters that lend themselves to reflecting on what it means to be human uh, and, and then also give us a sense of what transcendence might be like. You know, we don't know what it's like to stand in the presence of God. All we have are analogies. And so I think that is for us uh, an analogy. So you may go up onto the mountain and you know, the clouds don't descend, there are no rumblings, no one gives you any tablets inscribed by the finger of God, but, but just the act of going up there helps you imagine an encounter with transcendence. So in that sense, I think there is, there is something to that. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and of tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. We couldn't end our episode on the mountains without hearing these words from the author of Hebrews. The whole story of God's salvation of humanity can be summed up as a tale of two mountains, Mount Sinai, surrounded by fear and awe, and Mount Zion, a place of rejoicing. At Sinai, the thought of communing face to face with God was so terrifying that it filled the sinful people with dread. In the shadow of that peak, the restoration of the bond between the human and the divine must have seemed almost impossible. At Zion, peace was made, and we commune with our Creator in joy. It's interesting to note the description of Zion here. 
to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God. Mountain and city together, just as in Psalm 48, a place the author of Hebrews calls the heavenly Jerusalem. For the people of God, this is the mountain that's calling. And in the grace of Jesus Christ, we must go. That's all the time we have this week for the commentary. Thanks to Cameron, as always, and a special thank you to Dan for sitting in with us this week. And thanks to you as well for listening. We hope you'll join us next time. And in the meantime, please share the commentary with your friends online or through word of mouth. And if you haven't already, you can subscribe to the commentary on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. To find out more about us online, visit graceforsufalls.org. 